This is hell. This is not the media. This is hell. Over the years here on This is Hell, we have been very fortunate to feature economists, analysts, writers, and contributors to the Washington, D.C.-based think tank Center for Economic Policy and Research, which specializes in economic policy, especially in the United States and Latin America, but globally as well. Since the beginning of this century, we have had people from CEPR on the show, like Dean Baker and Mark Weisbrot. In fact, uh, for the first time in several years, Dean will be returning to the show next week. Today, we will be talking about the recent Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed yesterday as a bill by President Biden. Jobs, guns, crypto, and skyrocketing rents with Algernon Austin, the director for race and economic justice at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, where he regularly writes. His recent writing includes the report, High Joblessness for Black Youth, More Than 500,000 Jobs Are Needed, as well as the articles, Black People Need Better Options from the Morgue, or Than the Morgue or Mass Incarceration, Black People and Everyone Else Should Avoid Crypto, Only Radical Changes Will Make Rents Affordable, and black children are disproportionately harmed by extremist gun rights policies in the United States. And he is quoted in the new CEPR statement, Inflation Reduction Act is historic progress. And yes, somehow we're going to try to talk about all of that on the show today. You can find all of Algernon's writing at CEPR's website, CEPR.net. You can follow CEPR on Twitter at CEPR. DC Algernon has conducted research and writing on issues of race and racial inequality for over 20 years. His primary focus has been on the intersection of race and the economy. Austin was the first director of the Economic Policy uh, Economic Policy Institute Institute's program on race, ethnicity and the economy, where he focused on the labor market condition of America's workers of color. He has also done work on racial wealth inequality for the Center for Global Policy Solutions and for the Demos Think Tank. At the Thurgood Marshall Institute, the think tank of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund Incorporated, he worked on issues related to race, the economy, and civil rights. He has a Ph.D. in sociology from Northwestern University, and he taught sociology as a faculty member at Wesleyan University. His most recent book is America is Not Post-Racial, Xenophobia, Islamophobia, Racism, and the 44th President. You can follow Algernon, Algernon on Twitter at Algernon underscore Austin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how have you been over these low these past two weeks while I have been away on vacation? Oh, I've been good. It's good to see your smiling face once again. Thank you. It's good to see you. Anything new in your world? Well, yesterday I fixed my brother laser printer. I repaired it. It's 15 years old. It's going again. Wow. Purring like a kitten. You're actually, you've got a, a laser printer that's been working for 15 years. That's yeah. pretty remarkable. Some lonely nerd on YouTube showed me the spring to increase tension on and got it going again. Oh, no kidding. How long did it take you to figure that out? Well, I watched the video. That took about 20 minutes and then 20 <laughs> more minutes to do it. It was great. I don't know if I could get through 20 minutes of a video t of somebody trying to tell me how to fix a brother printer <laughs> and fixing a spring. A very, 
I get I get ASMR kind of. It was a little tingly. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's very good. Lucky you. Yeah. So uh, while I was at the lake uh, over the last couple of weeks doing my best to recover from two surgeries earlier this year, I somehow blew out both of my shoes, sneakers, tennis shoes, gym shoes, whatever you want to call them. These, these might be cross trainers. I don't know. I have no freaking idea what you, you call them. Uh, my kicks. I don't know. Anyway, I blew up both of my shoes during vacation. Uh, the rubber toe on both detached from the sole and began flapping so much and catching on everything that I, I had to cut off that rubber flap that was flapping off the front of my toe. But I was on, off on vacation. I figured it was no big deal as I had old shoes at home I could wear when I got back from my annual summer family vacation. But when I got back late Sunday night and went to my closet, I remembered how at some point during the ongoing pandemic, I purged all of my old shoes. So this week, all week, I have no choice but to walk around in shoes that are slowly disintegrating. And it will be interesting to see if I can actually make it all the way to the weekend, which will be my first opportunity to go to the shoe store. And I checked. The shoes I wear are not online. So don't tell me I should just have them delivered to my home instead of going to some shoe store. But... Man, is it a pain in the ass to walk on shoes that only have half of the sole. This just reminds me of uh, points in my life when things weren't going so great and I had to use a newspaper as the insole of my shoe. So, uh, what memories. But more important than uh, that, uh, which than any of that, Dan, what the hell is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? <laughs> I think the rubber soles of my shoes is the thing that I'm flushing down the toilet. Not, not that I committed any crimes. I did commit some crimes up at the lake this year. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the, 20, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. We cannot afford to be a not-for-profit. We don't profit enough to become a not-for-profit. We do not take any money from any grants, and we don't take any commercial money. So anything that we earn from the show, we earn from you. Thanks to a couple more people who have recently shown their support for This Is Hell. Thanks to Jacob B. of Surrey, British Columbia, Canada, who got the increasingly popular This Is Hell trucking professional cap. And thanks to Zachary Yu of Seattle, Washington, who also picked up a This Is Hell trucking professional cap, which are now flying off the virtual shelves at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following the premiere of the newly renamed Seb's Soapbox, which will now forever be known as The Past Inside the Present Producer Sebastian Vopers weekly look back at history to help us understand right now. You can email us with your guest or topic suggestions. 
constructive or destructive criticism if you'd like at chuck at this is and if you do we'll likely read your email on air and if we have your suggested guest on the show we'll thank you personally during the interview with your suggested guest we got an email from gregory k who writes saying in all caps chuck don't stop doing the show we will work on increasing fundraising in order to pay people to do the other stuff I'm good at fundraising. Just need to find the time. Remember the House on the Rock. It's a Midwestern version of Remember the Alamo. Love, Gregory. Other than your crazy references to the House on the Rock in Wisconsin. Uh, Thanks, Gregory. And although we do not help, uh, we do not need help when it comes to fundraising. Actually, and this probably isn't a a good thing to share if we want to raise money by threatening that we will stop doing the show. But I promise I will never stop doing the show until I am physically incapable of doing so, which, given my recent medical history, a flat line will take me out before any bottom line will. But again, we, yeah, we do actually need help in funding the show. And everybody can help out the show right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We also got an email from longtime listener John L. who writes, Hey Chuck, I've been away for a while and stopped over at Carrie's Lounge last Thursday. I heard everything went well with your operation. That's great news. Congratulations. Hopefully that's the end of all of that. However, having staples removed from your stomach sans anesthesia, that's pretty intense. Glad that went well, but you know, I removed a splinter from my finger once without anesthesia. That's sort of the same thing, right? Signed, John. Thanks, John, and we hope to see you and everyone listening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, for the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party, as well as the closing party for the This Is Hell-sponsored This Is Art Art Show. That's all coming up on Saturday, September 17th, one month from today during summer's final weekend. As for staple removal without anesthesia, John, the first time back in May that it happened to me, it was horrible, very painful. But the second time, despite removing almost three dozen staples, like three times more than they took out the first time, it wasn't so bad, but it was definitely worse than a splinter being removed from my finger. However, I have had some pretty nasty splinters, so... Let me get back to you on that. Again, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, and if you do, we'll likely read your email on air. Thanks, Gregory and John, for emailing. And, yeah, Gregory, I appreciate any kind of help you want to give us with fundraising because, uh, yeah, our bottom line is not looking all that great. Coming up, Dan will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? What evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? We'll also have Jeff Dorchin, who is delivering the moment of truth a little bit earlier this week, kind of. It's all very complicated. And we'll tell you who will be on the show later on this week. Truly revolting radio. This is hell. How significant is the Inflation Reduction Act that President Biden just signed yesterday? Why has black youth joblessness been so hard to address? What do new Supreme Court rulings on reproductive rights and limits to gun ownership mean for the black community? 
why is crypto a bad investment, not just for African Americans, but for everyone? And can anything be done about skyrocketing rent? Here to help us answer those questions and many, many more. Algernon Austin is the director of for Race and Economic Justice at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, where he regularly writes. You can find all of his writing at CEPR's website, CEPR.net, and you can follow CEPR on Twitter at CEPRDC. Welcome to This Is Hell, Algernon. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you on the show. Your writing that I've been reading over at CEPR.net has just been fantastic, and everybody should check out your most recent book, America is not post-racial, xenophobia, Islamophobia, racism, and the 44th president. Let me just start right there. This isn't something I had written down beforehand or anything, but how much do you think that the concept, the idea that America is post-racial, how much impact do you think that has on economic policy and decisions like Supreme Court decisions of late? How much do you think that post-racial framing still affects our policy and politic-making? Well, it is a it is a point that uh, conservative uh, conservatives use to advance their agenda and their policies. So uh, there is a way in which, well, let me let me back up and say that you know this <laughs> race and racism, the the exploitation of people of color, is really uh fundamental to understanding american history i mean you have the you know the genocide of native peoples we have hundreds of years of slavery the jim crow and the current you know segregation and inequality so it is a fundamental part it is of course not the only story in american history but it is a fundamental part and to become to become a better nation and to live up to uh, our potential, uh, we have to engage with that history, and we have to to become a more equitable society for all people. Uh, we have to engage in, in the society, uh, but people who don't want uh, the United States to become an equ equitable society, part of their logic is denying that history uh the both the past and the present of racial inequality so the post-racial framing uh, and the post-racial ideas and ideology is really important to that um, um to that project of preventing us from becoming a more equitable society for all so do you think that that is the basic political line of demarcation in the United States right now, those who support inequality uh, as opposed to those who support equality? Um, yes, you know, very in a in a rough in a rough crude sense. Yes, we we do have, uh, you know, looking looking at economic inequality, we're we're more unequal than we have been for 100 years. Um, so we have lots of policies. Um, that support inequality. And we have, unfortunately, lots of leaders and lobbyists that work to maintain and increase inequality. Uh, and on the other side, we have some people who 
are sort of cognizant of this and are working to try to counteract this very large and growing inequality in American society. CEPR released a statement this week uh, titled Inflation Reduction is Historic Progress on the bill that was signed yesterday by President uh, Biden. In that statement, you are quoted saying, with daily news of floods, droughts, forest fires, and extreme heat, all exacerbated by climate change, it should be clear that everyone is at risk from more frequent and worsening natural disasters. It is also the case that climate change will cause disproportionate harm to low-income people and people of color residing in the lower half of the contiguous United States, Alaska, and Hawaii. Earlier this week, we spoke with Dr. Stephen Thrasher about his new book, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. Stephen points out the inequality experienced by marginalized people during the HIV epidemic and COVID pandemic, both that people of color have had less access to life-saving health care when it comes to viruses, as well as Uh, work and live in environments where the viruses are more likely to spread. Stephen points out how viruses reveal fault lines in society, in this case increasing inequality at the same time as the world is experiencing increasing crises like pandemics and climate change. In your opinion, is climate change revealing the fault line of racial inequality in the United States? And if so, what impact do you think that may have on politics and policy here in the States? Yeah, well, climate change is truly a global problem. So um, there is the racial inequality fault fault line, like I mentioned, uh, people of color uh, in the southern parts of the continental United States are going to be disproportionately exposed to heat and hurricanes and, you know, like we saw in Texas, occasional extreme cold. Um, certainly in Alaska, the you know we the 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 Arctic is warming at a very rapid rate that's disrupting uh, ways of life, particularly for the indigenous populations there. And with Hawaii being an island, rising sea seas are going to disrupt life there, and and uh, possibly change you know climate change will disrupt the the ecology of the earth. So yes, there is a disproportionate racial impact, but we this is a is a, a very big problem, global problem. So it's also revealing, you know, the power of um, the you know the some of the power of the fossil fuel industry, but also some of the the sort of ideological um, ideological um, reaction or reflexiveness of the current uh, sort of MAGA uh, conservative movement where anything, anything (laughs) Democrats or liberals are for, they're against. So, uh, you know, liberals are for addressing climate change, so therefore they're going to be against addressing climate change. So it does, I think, expose some of that dynamic, some of the polarization, um, uh, the extreme polarization that we're uh, um, encountering in American society, as well as the uh, strength of the fossil fuel industry in in uh, our policy. So it's 
there is a racial impact, but this this fault line is really around that sort of political, that particular political economic dynamic. Do you think that's why the Inflation Reduction Act was passed? Because a lot of people were surprised that the IRA was passed. Do you think it's due to the fact that there is some recognition happening right now at the highest levels of power within the United States that climate change does have to be addressed in at least some relatively serious way? Uh, Yeah, well, there is recognition. I mean, there are lots of people. I think probably the majority of people in the country (laughs) recognizes that it's a problem and needs to be addressed. Unfortunately, uh, as I, I mentioned, the fossil fuel industry, you know, they got they got some stuff in the bill, thanks to Joe Manchin, um, as well as um, there's that, you know, it, it was as well as the fact that no Republicans, zero Republicans supported it. So we see that sort of part, hyperpartisanship going on. Um, there are Republicans, and I'm and I would be surprised if many of the people who voted against it recognize that it's a problem, but partisan politics means that they're not going to support it or they can't support it um, if they want to keep their job in Congress. So how much of a victory is it then if the fossil fuel companies got some sort of concessions through the Inflation Reduction Act and that it still remained a partisan voted on bill? How much of a victory is this if nothing seems to have really changed when it comes to concessions and partisanism? Uh, It's a victory because we got it. Uh, There was, you know, if you'd asked me just what, two, three weeks ago, I would have said, it's dead, we're not going to get it. I think most of the countries fought the same. Um, So it's a victory. This is a historic investment. This is the most that we've done uh, to address climate change mitigation. Um, So that is a victory. Let me add that within the infrastructure, you know, the bipartisan, and there was a little bit of bipartisanship around the infrastructure law, uh, there is also some uh, climate change mitigation. So the Biden administration needs to get credit for really doing a lot, certainly more than any other other administration in, in history uh, for addressing climate. Of course, a lot more needs to be done. Uh, not just in the United States, but across the globe, but certainly more needs to be done. But um, we we need to think about this as the first steps and not like the final word. Uh, we hope that going forward, we'll do more for climate, that we'll do more for the care economy. Um, and, you know, there, there are lots of Lots of more, lot more work needs to be done on everything that was addressed in this bill, but um, we just need to think about it as, as one step of a very long journey. In the report, High Joblessness for Black Youth, More Than 500,000 Jobs Are Needed, you write Black youth should have a higher rate of employment than white youth since they have a greater need to work. In general, Black youth have less wealth and a higher poverty rate than white youth. Black youth are less likely to pursue a bachelor's or advanced degree, and if they do, they're more likely to drop out of college than white youth. 
Black youth are more likely to start a family before 25 than white youth. Unfortunately, because of anti-black discrimination in the labor market and other factors, black youth work less than white youth. There's a very high rate of joblessness among black youth relative to their white peers, higher than even that suggested by the employment rate. This high rate of joblessness sets many black youths on a troubled path into adulthood, a path that will also cause difficulties for their children. So anti-black discrimination in the labor market can also include anti-black discrimination in urban planning, public transportation, city services, uh, the basic logistics to get to and from a place of employment, let alone inequality in accessible and quality health care and education, including job, job training. Can black youth joblessness be overcome only by overcoming anti-black discrimination in all its forms, including the more institutional, structural, and cultural aspects of racism, because that would seem like an incredibly intense and immense challenge. Yes. Um, so I'm glad you listed all of the challenges. It's really important for people to know that and acknowledge that that there are multi, a multitude of challenges, you know, in our educational system, in our criminal justice system, in our healthcare system, in, in our finance and housing, et cetera. Um, so yes, uh, the addressing, as I kind of, as I was saying before, addressing some of the problems in the labor market is one step in a long journey. So yes, we need to address all of these things and all of these things, in, there's an interplay among all of these problems, unfortunately. So uh, that's why it's so difficult. And that's why, you know, more than 60 years after the civil rights movement, we're still struggling. Um, so it's important that we address joblessness, joblessness um, for Black youth, as I mentioned, um, you know, and, and by youth, I mean 16 to 24 year olds. We, the, the employment rate gap between black youth and white youth is about half a million. It's actually over half a million jobs. When you look at the black population in total from 16 to 54 years old, we're talking about 1.5 million jobs for the, the, the white black uh, jobs gap there. Um, so this is quite significant and this contributes to the high rate of poverty that we see in black communities and all the, the various problems that, that we can imagine emanates from a population that is not simply impoverished today, but for the past 60 years have been living with very high rates of joblessness, basically living in economically depressed communities. Not everyone, of course, but there are many, many Black communities that can be uh, accurately de described as economically depressed. So if we're able to address that problem, if we're able to create uh, that 1.5 uh, million jobs and employ uh, Black people so that they have a similar employment rate to white people. That is an important step forward in terms of reducing poverty um, and improving um, 
a number of outcomes, producing a little bit more food security, housing security, um, health, improving health outcomes a little bit, uh, likely reducing uh, criminal activity a little bit, et cetera. Um, it's not everything. So yes, it is not, it is not the end of the story. Even if we could, even if we could get 1.5 million jobs, it is not the end of, um, uh, uh, white, black inequality in American society, but it would be quite a substantial step forward. Um, you know, and that's that's why this the you know, and this just underscores why the post-racial argument is just so ridiculous uh, when you think of all the domains and the depth of inequality that we we see in in American society. But as you were saying, this is just like with the uh, in, in, uh, Inflation Reduction Act. This is just one step, and that would suggest that this is a process of incrementalism. And a lot of people are critical of the process of incrementalism. Other people believe it's the only way forward. Some people were saying after the uh, decisions in the Supreme Court when it comes to reproductive rights and gun rights, that this proves that when it comes to the far right, that incrementalism works, that over time, if they just keep pecking away and pecking away and pecking away, they'll get their way when it came to gun rights and reproductive rights. So is incrementalism is that the best way and the only way that we can move forward, that we can have progress? Well, there's there's incrementalism and then there's incrementalism. It's like, <laughs> what do you what do you mean? So, I mean, with what I'm working on now is a, a, a subsidized jobs proposal, and my target is you know 1.5 roughly million jobs. That's what I think the problem is. And that's, you know, what I think is ideal. There are some people and, you know, a, a real, a pretty robust program. Uh, there are some people who advocate for this type of work and, you know, their target would be, you know, in the order of like 20,000 jobs. Um, so it's, you know, from my perspective, the 20,000 is incrementalism because the problem is 1.5. I'm just making up some numbers here. Um, but, um, you know, there there are perspectives where people will look at what I'm doing and say, oh, well, that is incrementalism. So there, it, it needs to be unpacked, but there's, there's also the, the issue of I'm addressing one problem. And as we mentioned, there are problems in multiple areas. So um, the only, you know, unless you have some sort of magic wand, you can't address all of the problems because there are many and they're all big um, at once. Uh, it will, you have to break it in pieces and try to address it. Now, about the conservative movement, I do think that progressives need to learn a lot more from the progressive movement. I think the progressive movement, I mean, the conservative movement, correction, the con learn more from the conservative movement. The conservative movement um, has been extremely effective at achieving their goals because they have focused on power 
um, and they've focused on uh, having a strategy to obtain that power. And I see that really lacking among progressives. So as we talked with the courts, you know, that's like a 20, 30 year um, plan that was enacted to take over, you know, our court system. And it was effective. Um, similarly with the, the anti-abortion struggle, uh, yes, I mean, it, it, it's in conjunction with the courts, but yes, there were, even before the, the Dobbs decision, there were lots of uh, additional restrictions in conservative states to access to abortion. Uh, I, I am, maybe I'm just out of the loop, but I don't have the sense that progressive have that kind of planning organization and long-term strategy around power building. I, I haven't seen it. I'm not aware of it. And I think until the progressive movement does that, uh, there will always be on the defensive and uh, always reacting to what the conservative movement is doing. You mentioned the Dobbs decision, and the report also finds the report on black youth joblessness finds because of the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs v. Jackson's women's, women's Health Organization decision, which ended the federal right to an abortion, many black youths will have children before they are ready. The abortion rate for black females is higher than for white females, and a larger share of black youth reside in states where abortion is banned, will be banned, or has strong restrictions. These births mean more black youths will need jobs. If what we are in currently is a black youth joblessness crisis, what does overturning Roe, what does a lack of reproductive rights in the United States mean for the future of black communities? Yes, it's it's unfortunately one additional blow that will in increase the suffering and hardship um, in black communities. Um, many, you know, many of these young women um, are to do not desire to give birth to have a child because they're not in the economic circum circumstances to raise a child. But the Dobbs decision will force will basically force them into that position. So it's going to increase hardship. And as I also mentioned in the report, unfortunately, in these states, they're they're uh, uh, their social supports, their policies to support people in, in poverty are very weak. Um, and unfortunately, you know, in a number of cases, I think the the conservative leadership are, are you know, try to make the the try to make the the uh, safety net and uh, sort of the uh, social welfare policies even weaker than it currently is. There's just a report that the governor of Mississippi is refusing, is gonna re return $130 million in rental assistance. Now we all know rents are skyrocketing. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of um, uh, housing insecurity high eviction rates, eviction rates are going to be increasing. And the federal government provided Mississippi with funds for rental assistance. 
they have $130 million left and they're saying, no, we're going to send this back to the federal government and we're going to let people, you know, face eviction um, uh, or struggle and have to choose between, well, do I eat tonight or do I pay my rent? Um, so, you know, and this is Mississippi, one of the states with the highest proportion of Black people. Um, so it's, it's um, you know, a very uh, sad and painful decision because of the, the amount of suffering that it will cause. Also, another key finding in your report on Black youth joblessness is uh, households headed by youth are low in financial resources, but the households of Black youth are significantly worse off than those of their white peers. So is being in poverty for black youths worse than being in poverty for whites of the same age? And how do we, how do we understand poverty differently when it's recognized that there is, there's, you know, even inequality amongst the way in which different races experience poverty? Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, let's start by looking at, um, Let's start by stepping back. The United States is a very rich country and we have a very high rate of poverty. Um, we do not need to have this high rate of poverty. It's our cho choice, it's our policy decisions. I just gave the example of Mississippi. Uh, there's money available to help uh, poor renters and the governor has refused the money. Uh, there are there are uh, uh, various you know tax policies, labor policies, et cetera, uh, that would uh, help reduce poverty and economic hardship across the board. But we have uh, failed to enact them, and we've in, in turn enacted policies that that help make richer people make rich people even richer. Uh, yes, there there is on average a difference between black poverty and white poverty. I, I stress on average because of course there are lots of there are lots of whites who are facing significant economic hardship and I do not want to downplay that at all. Um, and there are people of all races, you know, indigenous, uh, Latino, um, Asian, etc. So unfortunately, in this country, as I said, there's much more poverty than um, there should be. Um, and all of this is unfortunate given how rich we are as a country. But there, on average, there tends to be significant differences between uh, white poverty and black poverty. One, black poverty tends to be more concentrated because we're uh, not just class segregated, but we're a racially segregated um, society. There's a higher rate of, of, of poverty among uh, African-Americans and that poverty uh, tends to be concentrated. Um, when we're thinking about poverty, uh, poverty, we're typically thinking about income. Um, so income poverty, but we also have to realize the wealth inequality and wealth is a more comprehensive a measure of economic circumstances. So um, a in terms of wealth, Black people have just a tiny fraction on average of the wealth that 
that uh, white people have. So these uh, communities of concentrated black poverty, they don't simply lack in income, but they lack in wealth. They lack in, in resources that people can turn to and rely on when their income is scarce. That's what wealth, that's one of the benefits of having wealth. It's like, if I get laid off, I have some savings that I can turn to. I have some uh, some other resources that I can uh, draw on. Uh, African-Americans are much less likely to have that. Um, you know, and that, that's one factor, you know, contributing to a higher rate of homelessness among African-Americans than whites, for example. Uh, because of this high joblessness, high poverty, low wealth, um, and high segregation, these communities have fewer economic resources uh, than the communities that white, the white poor it, uh, lives in. White people, white, the white poor tends to live in communities that are less poor overall on average than the communities that the Black poor live in. So they're less, much less likely to live in communities of concentrated poverty and lacking wealth and resources and infrastructure. But um, that is a much more typical situation for the Black poor. So yes, so you do have these differences even among, um, even among uh, poor whites and poor Blacks, you see much, much uh, deeper and broader deprivation uh, for the Black poor. We are speaking with Algernon Austin. He is the Director for Race and Economic Justice at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. So you also write in that report for Black people who face a persistently weak demand for their labor, labor, who live in areas where there are few job opportunities or who have been repeatedly rejected by employers, their labor force participation rate may be chronically depressed. These workers can be considered to be experiencing a permanent recession. There's an old saying that if white people are experiencing a recession, the black community is experiencing a depression. When we are not officially in a recession like today, is the black community always in that permanent recession? And how big of a role does black youth joblessness play in that permanent recession? Yes, definitely. There is a permanent recession. And um, when you look at the employment rate, you see that uh, that the, the employment rate for uh, Black people is significantly lower than for white people. And I've done another report, a previous report, looking specifically at the situation for Black men, for prime age Black men, that's 25 to 54. And you see over decades, uh, the, the rate of employment for black men is about 10 percentage points lower than the rate for white men. So that is a, a severe disadvantage um, in terms of employment. And uh, yes, yeah, so it's not simply that there is a youth jobs gap that is large and unfortunately persistent. But it's not just Black youth. It's also uh, uh, Black adults, particularly uh, Black men. We also see high unemployment rates for Black women. Uh, but it's, it's particularly large uh, for prime age Black men. 
Um, so unfortunately, there's a lot of joblessness around all the various subgroups of the Black population. And that's why we need, even in this period of a, of a, of a very low official national unemployment rate, even in this period, because many people have uh, to be counted as unemployed, they're they're you know it's it's very specific, and there are four four different criteria that needs to be met before the Bureau of Labor Statistics say that you're unemployed. Um, but that means because it's so uh, such a strict criteria, that means that there are lots of people, and particularly black people, who are jobless who are not counted as unemployed. Um, so that's why I look at the rate of employment. And when you look at that and you look at it over time, you see this severe joblessness that is persistent. Um, and this is why even in this period where the, the unemployment rate that meets all the technical specifications from the Bureau of Labor Statistics is historically low, we still need 1.5 million jobs for the Black uh, employment rate to reach the the white employment rate. So why the focus, especially by the media and by the government as well, on the unemployment rate, which is seemingly misleading when it comes to who actually does and how many people actually do have jobs? Well, the unemployment rate is a useful measure for the groups who uh, are treated more fairly and more equitably, equitably in the labor market. So it works pretty well for uh, prime age white uh, adults, um, which is which is you know uh, the majority or the at least the plurality of the the labor market. So. So it's fair to use that that rate, and there there's a rationale for the criteria that the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, uses. Um, however, um, like everything, it has its strengths and its weaknesses. And for groups like um, African Americans, and also for the Indigenous or Native American population, it does not work very well. <laughs> Um, and for those groups, we really need to look at the employment rate, not the unemployment rate. Or the employment rate is another way of saying the employment to population ratio, and, and particularly the gap that we see with the white employment to population ratio, to get a, a more accurate sense of the the of joblessness. And once you do that for for African Americans, you see that the jobs gap. Uh, if you compare the jobs gap that you you get using the unemployment rate versus the jobs gap that you get using the employment rate or the employment to population ratio, you see that they're two and a half to three times larger. The employment rate gap is is can be uh, you know two and a half uh, times during when the labor market is fairly good, but it can can be three or over three times when the labor market is weak. So it, it's quite misleading when you think about that, that that the 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 real rate of joblessness is is two and a half, three times what what you think it is based on the 
the most publicized uh, statistics from the unemployment rate. Now, every time I hear the unemployment rate uh, reported in the media, I'm going to immediately hear a silent white before the words unemployment rate. So, <laughs> so you also in the report, you find that to have a lower likelihood of being unemployed than a white high school dropout, a black youth needs some college or an associate degree. A black youth needs a bachelor's degree to have a lower likelihood of being unemployed than a white youth with a high school diploma. This suggests that while education, training, and skills acquisition does increase the odds of black youth finding work, it is not enough to ensure equal opportunity. Is education then not the problem when it comes to black youth joblessness? Because so often that's what I hear, especially Democratic politicians, but Republicans as well, saying is that the problem is that black, black youths just do not have the access and quality education that they should have, that the problem is if they were just educated better, then that black youth joblessness would drop. Yeah, that's not, that's not the full story. But both, both are, nece- I mean, yes, we have, we have significant educational inequality, as, as we were talking about before, unfortunately, in every, in every, or every sort of arena society in every major institution there's there's significant inequality and we have chosen we have chosen to fund and organize our school system in ways that uh, uh, sustain and maintain both racial and class inequality in educational outcomes we have designed a system where if you're very wealthy and particularly if you're white, you get your schools in your neighborhood are very high quality and very well resources. And if you're poor and you're black, your schools are, are going to be the opposite of that. We have designed a system for to function in this way. Other countries do it differently. We have chosen to, to do this. So yes, we need to make different choices <laughs> so that um, the educational resources going to African Americans are more equitable uh, than we have. Uh, we we need to address that, and we need other policies to try to obtain uh, more uh, equal educational outcomes. So yes, that is absolutely necessary. However, when we look at um, this is just looking at the unemployment rate, and we talked about the, the weaknesses, uh, but it's very, but for this analysis, we have the strength, those, those things, those criteria uh, are useful because they're in place. You're not, you're getting very particular um, individuals who are actively looking for work, one of the criteria for to be unemployed. You are actively looking for work in the past four weeks, you actually applied for a job, um, and when we look at the um, unemployment rate for youth, uh, these are people under 24 years old, we see that even at the same uh, level of educational attainment, we still see uh, a, a large unemployment uh, rate disparity, with the Black rate being, you know, typically close, you know, twice or close to two times the white rate. Um, and this is, let's think about this for the less than high school category or for the high school dropouts. So we're talking about someone 
who is under 25, 16 to 24. So they don't have much work experience, right? You're not, these, these are not individuals who can, who you can differentiate and says, oh, well, this person has been doing X for 10 years. So they're really knowledgeable. So that's why I'm hiring them. No, these are youth. So they don't have much experience. And they're high school dropouts. So they don't have formal education. You know, being a high school dropout is, you know, economists would say it's like a negative signal or kind of a stigma uh, for employers. But so we're looking at very young high school dropouts. They don't have experience. They don't have formal education. Yet the unemployment rate for for black high school dropouts is twice the unemployment rate for white high school dropouts. So you can't say that it's skills that's differentiating these two groups because they're both, they both have very little in terms of formal education or work experience. Uh, what's different between the white group and the black group is race. And that is the likely explanation for the black youth high school dropout unemployment rate to be twice that of, of the rate of white youth high school dropouts. We were talking about the Dobbs ruling earlier by the Supreme Court. In your article, Black People Need Better Options Than the Morgue or Mass Incarceration, you write the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in New York State Rifle and P uh, Pistol Association versus Bruin significantly restricts the rights of states to regulate the possession of firearms. It will inevitably lead to more Americans being killed, wounded, and traumatized from gun violence. Its impact will fall particularly hard on black Americans who die from shootings at nearly three times the rate of white Americans. Indeed, gun violence is the leading cause of death for young men. So whether it's the Dobbs decision or the Bruin decision, are they both anti-black decisions that are rooted in white supremacy? Um, they are anti-Black decisions. I wouldn't say that they're rooted in white supremacy. I think they're rooted in other politics that um, support white supremacy. <laughs> um, but there, there, are other, there are other dynamics of driving them. And I'm glad you, you brought up this decision and, and the piece that I wrote about it because I was very distressed that uh, some Black public defenders, uh, uh, I think, are strongly misguided in seeing this, vic this the Bruin decision uh, that's limiting uh, the rights of states to regulate firearms as being somehow uh, an advance of civil rights when it's, I think, the, the opposite because it will absolutely lead to more Black people being killed. Um, uh, they, their argument was, well, the way that New York State enforced the law was discriminatory and led to more you know, disproportionate Black incarceration. And I would say that's probably the case. I wouldn't be surprised, but that would be the case for several other laws um, and possibly all laws. Um, so we shouldn't say, well, because this law has not been uh, enforced uh, completely fairly, then we should get rid of it because that would mean you, pretty much you get rid of every law. 
Um, and that's not that's not the way to have a functioning civilized society. Um, so my my what I said is that they need to support gun safety laws because black people are disproportionately killed by gun violence. And what they really need to be pushing for is for better policing. Um, there are many countries in the world where the police actually serve the citizens, where they actually serve and protect, and there are good community police relations. Um, so that's what they should be uh, pushing for. And in Camden, New Jersey, there has been progress on this front. There has uh, there is a, a tremendous reorganization of the police and relations with the Black community increased and the homicide rate decreased. Now, I'm sure there are still lots of problems with Camden, as we we're saying. Unfortunately, with all of these things, we, we were able to take one step and not, you know, wave a magic wand and eliminate all the problems. So with Camden they were able to take a few positive steps and that's what we should be supporting and figuring out how can we take more steps like they've taken and how can we do it in more places, not how can we uh, support Clarence Thomas who wrote the this horrible decision. Um, and you should know that if Clarence, if you're siding with Clarence Thomas, you're not siding with civil rights. Uh, uh, so, they, I, they should recognize that this was a horrible decision for Black safety and for valuing Black life. Just a few more questions for you. You write, rather than the gun law lawlessness promoted by the extremists on the Supreme Court, Black Americans must insist on gun safety laws and an end to mass incarceration. To you, what explains why the majority on the Supreme Court would support what you call gun lawlessness? I mean, I'm sure that they see it as gun lawfulness, but what does it reveal to you when what they see as gun lawfulness, you see as gun lawlessness? Uh, yes, well, this is part, as I mentioned earlier, this is part of a decades-long uh, move to of conservative to take over the Supreme Court. And this movement has been about um, uh, appointing extremist um, ideological judges to the courts. Um, and also getting back to the partisanship uh, position, it's about partisanship, it's about par party over people. Um, you know, getting back to Mississippi, it's not about what is best for the American people. It's what is best for uh, the party and the power of the party. And the NRA and supporting the NRA's position is is wrapped up in the conservative movement. So this was a a decision that was basically following <laughs> following the the uh, guidance or the inspiration of the NRA and the judges uh, that have been appointed are ideological judges who support these ideological positions. I mean, if you look at this, they're, they're supposed to be, they, they call themselves originalists, um, but they disregard the, the text of the Second Amendment. The text of the Second Amendment 
talks about a well-regulated militia. Regulated is in there. It's like the first clause is about regulation. And they're like, no, we can't regulate. Let's, let's prohibit states from regulating. And the second clause is about for the security of the state government. You know, so it, you can't read that and, and, and then say, well, states have no rights to regulate guns when the first two clauses are about regulation and states' rights. It's, it's an absurd decision. And um, reading it is just ridiculous. <laughs> I'm sorry to get so animated, but it's just so ridiculous. One other article I want to touch on before we let you go. In your article, Black People and Everyone Else Should Avoid Crypto, you write on June 9th of this year, the hip-hop star and businessman Sean Jay-Z Carter announced that he was starting the Bitcoin Academy to educate the residents of the Brooklyn, New York public housing complex where he grew up uh, to teach them about uh, cryptocurrency. The average household income for residents in New York City public housing is reported to be about $25,000. Investing in cryptocurrency is a terrible idea for low-income households, and it's not a good idea for most other people either. On June 9th, Bitcoin had lost nearly 60% of its value from the peak seven months earlier. So assuming Jay-Z's motivations were to help the people who now live in the projects where he grew up, what does it suggest to you about supporters of crypto or crypto more generally when despite a seven-month downturn, wealthy entrepreneurs still saw it as a way or at least a step along the way out of poverty? And what could happen if a crypto crash, what could happen to the black community if there was a crypto crash? Yeah, unfortunately, crypto has been very, uh, the crypto industry has been very effective and I guess savvy about marketing itself um, and convincing people that it's, you know, the new, new um, shiny thing that, that will be, you know, something like a Midas touch and turn everything, everything uh, blockchain will turn into gold. Uh, you know, so it's it's been very effective at getting people to, you know, like a magician, look away from where the action the 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 action is really happening. So it's gotten people like trying to understand the complexity of the of the. Uh, you know, the, the, the technology and the programming and ignoring the fact that it doesn't actually do anything. Um, you know, we don't use cryptocurrency to, as, a, as a currency, uh, number one. So it's not a currency. Um, and <clears throat> um, what it is, is an investment, but as an investment, there is nothing underneath it. It is not producing a good or a service. So all you have is something that is more or less like a like a Ponzi scheme, uh, or or yeah, more or less like a Ponzi scheme, where the more people who get involved, the the wealthier the first people who uh, joined in are, right? Um, so the basically it's, it's you know all the new investors help the old investors get richer. 
Um, and because there's been such high and such a rapid rise, you know, people have been become very excited because in a very short period of time, you know, their people became millionaires. And people looking at that assume that, well, if, you know, person X became a millionaire, I too can become a millionaire if I invest in them. Um, unfortunately, again, it's it's only dependent on hype. And we saw that most in the most extreme case with uh, Dogecoin or Dogecoin, uh, where Elon Musk did some tweets about Dogecoin. And next thing you know, it skyrockets. Uh, and then when you know the hype died down, it crashed and lost 90% of its value. 90%. So it's um, um, and why did it do that? Because there is nothing. It's not a currency. It doesn't produce a good or a service. It only exists on hype. Um, and that is not something that you want to invest in because the moment the hype goes down, you lose. If you haven't catch, cashed out in time, you lose all of your money. Um, so it's a terrible investment for, it's this terrible place to put your money if you're low-income African-American. Unfortunately, um, we have a disproportionate share of African-Americans investing in crypto um, so that's unfortunate. Uh, the The only upside is that it's still the the crypto uh, sphere is still not large enough to do um, as much damage as like the subprime, subprime uh, meltdown did. Uh, but it is unfortunate that that people who uh, a low income, low wealth uh, population. Um, will likely lose significant amounts of money. Um, if they haven't lost it already, they'll probably lose it in the near future. We have been speaking with Algernon Austin. He is the Director for Race and Economic Justice at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. You can find all of Algernon's writing at CEPR's website, cepr.net. You can follow CEPR on Twitter at CEPR.DC, and you can follow Algernon on Twitter at Algernon underscore Austin. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. In another article that you have recently written, Only Radical Changes Will Make Rents Affordable, you write the affordable rental housing situation in the United States has been in crisis from as early as the 1960s, and it has only worsened over time. Without a radically new approach, we cannot expect to solve the problem. The U.S. needs to adopt European-style social housing and also make rental assistance an entitlement. So how could social housing, how could uh, raising the or ending the joblessness problem for black youths in the United States, how can that, how can those assistance to people who need the assistance, how can that benefit the 1%? <laughs> how can it benefit... You know, I have an answer for you. Um, so the 1% uh, has been moving, because of the pandemic, has been moving to these very beautiful, uh, you know, 
rural areas, not rural, but, you know, these resort towns, uh, buying up homes, raising, raising rent, uh, raising property values, increasing homelessness, forcing, forcing working people to move because they can't afford to live in the communities anymore. And the restaurants, the restaurants are all understaffed. So if you're a one percenter, you have to wait, you know, a half hour because there's only two servers in the restaurant because all the others had to move because you've inflated the housing costs and they can't live in the town anymore. But if you supported the policies, there would be more servers at the restaurant and you wouldn't have to wait so long to have your nice meal in the resort town. That is possibly the most hellish answer to the question from hell we have had in a very, very long time. Congratulations, Algernon. You really hit it out of the park. Thank you so much for being on our show, and we are going to annoy you to have you back on the show again in the future. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been a true pleasure. I look forward to doing it again. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. Man, that was a hellish answer to the question from hell. If that conversation with Algernon Austin on race and the economy, if that was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how some of our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? <laughs> I love maniacally flushing the toilet. It's my favorite way to flush a toilet. Yeah, small pleasures. Take them where you can get them. <laughs> exactly. Warren L. says, man, I'm not fessing up to any of that in a public forum before <laughs> Mark Meadows does. <laughs> Tony H. says, tax returns and my communications with right-wing extremists, of course. All right. Doesn't everyone? <laughs> Curly B. says, you didn't think I was going to eat your green bean casserole when nobody else did. Mark B. says, orange smudges are evidence of looking at top-secret docks while seated on gold-plated toilet. <laughs> or while eating Cheetos. Yeah. Kim G. succinctly says, toxic stew. Chris C. elevates the level of discourse by answering poop. <laughs> and finally, Neil C. says, leftover <laughs> Ikea parts. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's erudite question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page you can tweet it to us you can email it to us but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following producer sebastian vooper and his newly renamed segment on history formerly known as seb soapbox but now retitled the past into the present. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Again, this week's question from hell is what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? The only true way to flush a toilet, maniacally. Speaking of which, let's not make him or our listeners wait any longer, Dan. I know you have. Hefe, on the line. One, two, you know what to do.
Super Truth, the Ghost in the Crystal. It was in ancient times when Sapperstein, a teenage pot smoker, used to cruise up and down Woodward Avenue in the environs of Detroit. He would listen to classic rock on FM radio. His main concern at the moment in question was, is Jethro Tull heavy metal or heavy wood? This was before the various metals became segregated into genres of their own, death metal, krautrock, nerdcore, etc. In a way, Saperstein was ahead of his time. He jolted to a stop, coming to full consciousness of the traffic around him just in time to avoid rear-ending a restored classic Pontiac GTO. He almost dropped his pipe. Unknowingly, he'd accidentally hit the band button. The radio was now tuned to an AM station. A male voice emerged, speaking in crisp, insistent salvos of rhetoric. Feminazis, the voice said. Reverse discrimination, it said. Tree huggers, the voice of the man mocked in his flurry of affected disgust. What was this disembodied spirit? It was infectious. It didn't infect Saperstein, but Saperstein's father became obsessed with it. Soon the voice was everywhere, and imitators flourished. The landscape of discourse changed for the worse, as regulations were dissolved in the service of capitalism's desires. This history-making voice went by many names, but we now know him as, quote, lush rim job or something, the drug addict from Missouri, unquote. Within half a century, the rim job ethos had swept the world, and it was a short journey from the bloviating bag of fecal matter who sprinkled his polemics with lies to entire networks of so-called news based entirely on lies. That evolution is one of the many reasons, if not the key reason, we find ourselves in the era of super truth. The Sapersteins of the world and everyone else from his historical context eventually grew old and ceased to exist. There arose in the West capitalists lauded for turning intellectual property, usually that of others, to their own profit. And from among these so-called thought leaders, success gurus, and oracles of progress came one called Elon Kuru III. Elon was a devotee of Kurzweil, who predicted the advent of a singularity when synthetic cognition would leave the minds of humans behind, intellectually and physically. Elon believed he could join that elite mental rapturing. To that end, he had his consciousness encoded and uploaded, years thence, utterly elsewhere, Far from Elon's crystal, wars of desperation were storming. The starving, choking, burning, bleeding rabble clawed and trampled each other in vain struggle to prolong their unenviable lives like the damned souls in the inferno or a crowd locked in a theater of fire. Civilization was moribund, its long age approaching its terminus. Humans led the way into extinction, but soon would follow the animals the last of the elephants, giraffes, big cats, great apes, baleen cetaceans, and the toothed whales would soon follow, and not long afterward, every mammal a person could claim distant evolutionary class kinship with. 
details. It was inevitable it would all be gone, down the drain of oblivion. True, the force at fault was the social behavior of homo sapiens. Ants couldn't have done it. Worms couldn't have done it. Beavers couldn't have done it. Only humanity could have so dominated and subjugated the biosphere as to bring it down completely. But Elon Kuru III was safe in his private simulacrum. The enriched condensate crystal gigaprocessor onto which he'd uploaded his consciousness was indestructible for the entire extent of eternity that a human could imagine. Powered by the multispectrum radiation of the sun, the hydrogen demise of which would launch him out of Earth's orbit and send him on what his physicists had calculated would be at least a four billion year journey to come to coast around and around the lip of the gravitational well of the red dwarf star Proxima Centauri. His existence was assured for another couple three trillion years, give or take, and by that time he'd have figured out what to do next. Elon was effectively immortal. Striding down the simulated Rue de Je ne sais quoi in his smartly tailed McQueen Kurta of silk, his Gucci's and silk trousers cocooning his perfect feet and legs, he could feel the entirely reasonable weight of his penis against his inner thigh. Its dimensions were his to decide, and he was proud of the good taste and restraint he demonstrated in the matter. Not that he would have anything to prove to a sexual conquest. All the women in his world were as attracted to him as he was to them. And in preparation for long-term psychological vicissitudes of an immortal mind projected by his private psychoanalysts, now most likely dead in that all-too-real world Elon had left behind, the male cast of the simulacrum looked, as did the females, all the different ways a young, sexually attractive person could. And they were no mere automatons, these twinks and bimbos. Not at all. They were as close to individual, unpredictable refractions of a luminous, complex personality as any AI could generate. For example, the heartbreaking beauty he is meeting at the sidewalk restaurant for champagne and oysters on a corner a few blocks from Saint-Chapelle. Estelle is her name, originally from Austria, mother North African, strawberry blonde hair with olive skin and green eyes, a light pink shirt unbuttoned at the collar, the hint of a lacy bra peeking up. She sets her hardcover copy of Middlemarch on the table as they take their seats. He has never read it. She goes on at length, quite delightfully, about it. Already he's challenged. Literature to read. People who love this but hate that. All the many flavors of lipstick to taste. Shapes of lips to explore with his. She has joined him on his side of the table solely for kissing purposes. How chaste, yet carnal. They both ache to consummate, or... He assumes she does, whatever that might mean in the imperceptible shifts in verisimilitude. They decide to take a walk to see the Saint-Chapelle windows. Patience is now effortless for him. The joy and ease of delicious withholding rises in him like fragrant breath in his lungs. They have all the time in the world and then some. He wonders if his perceptions and responses are being manipulated by the artificial intelligence he inhabits. But he doesn't wonder long because he is not a self-reflecting, thoughtful person. Eternity, he says to himself, is not going to be unpleasant in the least. This has been the moment of truth. Good day!
So a couple of things I got to share with you about my vacation over the last couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. As I know that you have spent time in northern Michigan and basically the same part of the world as I have. Pretty man, much. Man, is northern Michigan getting creepier and creepier. The extreme level of their love for Donald Trump, Trump is only matched by their extreme level of hatred for Joe Biden. The feeling is palpable when you're driving around to seeing the Trump flags and stickers and especially the large uh, homemade signs on people's yards. There's a, there's a kind of a, a big display right by where we stay, and it includes a large, very large sign about Michigan Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer, who is a regular target of the Trump crowd. <laughs> the sign oh, yeah. says in huge handwritten letters, my governor is an idiot. We then saw a gigantic <laughs> prefabricated flag, like the homeowner ordered it online. And again, in huge all caps, the flag just said, F Biden. And then there's also a huge display next to the butcher with the best bacon I've ever had. And that sign says, keep America, America great. And it has an image of Trump with the words, I will return beneath it. Did you see any of those homemade signs when you're dicking around Traverse City area? You know, that whole area from uh, from just north of Traverse City, well, even Traverse City itself, from Traverse City all the way up through Charlevoix and Petoskey, that whole area is rather mixed bag. Oh, really? So there's a lot of pushback against the fascists, especially because there's, as you know, Frisky, is there Frisky's? Uh, Frisk, uh, yeah. No, we call it Frisky's. Okay. Uh, the fruit market. It's a, yeah, it, Frisky's pies and orchards. And, you know, they are opposed by King Orchards farther south. Uh, so in Antrim County, right, in the, right at the entrance to Antrim, Antrum the Adorable, uh, the, or I'm sorry, Atwood the Adorable, there's, you know, Friskies. There's also other places you can go if you would rather not patronize them. Uh, but then down kind of parallel with Elk Rapids is uh, King Orchards. And I've already told you that, you know, uh, they've had Trump rallies along with the My Pillow guy being at, there at, at Friskies. Friskies, right. And that drunk woman who helped, supposedly helped Giuliani uh, uh, testify in front of the uh, Michigan right the Michigan attorney House yeah, yeah yes oh my god that lush anyway uh, but then uh, Biden showed up at, at King Orchards because King Orchards has been a liberal so and then there's there's liberals it's a pretty good mix now I have seen of course I mean you can't miss it at Frisky's you go in there and it's horrific it's just it's not it's not a pleasant atmosphere. Yeah, I, there was that huge uh, front page article in the New York Times a few months ago about it, which was fascinating. And then Antrim County, uh, where one of the two is located, or both of them are located, I'm not too sure, but they, they had their, they're uh, having their own like voting machine scandal right now. Mm -hmm. And that's the other crazy thing that's happening up there. So I get the Houghton Lake Resorter, and they've been talking about the voting machine scandal, but it's the local newspaper, and they seem to not <laughs> want to offend anybody. So you don't know what the controversy is. You I've been reading about this 
for five months now. I had no idea what the controversy was whatsoever because the weird legalese that they used throughout the article, all their, all their articles. So I had no idea what was happening until uh, on uh, one of the weeks I was up at the lake, uh, somebody brought a copy of the New York Times, and there was an article about that story in the county where I was staying that finally, <laughs> finally illuminated me and made me think, oh, oh, so that's what's happening. So there's there's the local politicians who illegally acquired a voting machine. They called up people who were the election officials and said that we have to, as an investigation by the Michigan State House, we have to pick up these voting machines and inspect God. them to make sure that they're okay. Well, apparently they, there was never an investigation. They just told people that there was, told these election officials there was an investigation. Then they get these election machines and they take them to Detroit area. Uh, so all the way down in Oakland County by Detroit, they take Ooh. these voting machines to hotel and B&Bs, Airbnbs, where they go through these machines. They try to print fake ballots. They try to see if they can alter the outcome of the machine count, the voting counting. They try to do all this different stuff with it. And wow. all of it's illegal. None of it was allowed, supposed to be going on. But one of the people participating in that conspiracy is now the person who is the Republican candidate for the attorney general position in Michigan. So I finally figured it out. It took me a New York Times article to figure out what the local newspaper, where this is actually happening, was trying to tell me but couldn't because of all the pressures you could tell that they were experiencing from both sides of the political spectrum. It was just- Yeah, well, Chucky, that's how you tell that it's a mixed bag, even where you were, because there are people who, you know, who- vaguely support the other side of the argument whatever it might be whatever that is so there's you know there are two poles that they have to fight against if it was just one poll they would just say what a bunch of malarkey no they wouldn't say malarkey because <laughs> yeah. that's biden's yeah. word whatever this is terrible there's never been anything as terrible as this people investigate is is the, is the attorney general candidate under investigation by now yes now that well they uh the attorney general, the acting or the acting, the current attorney uh, general, Don Nussel, I believe is her name. She is now asked for a special prosecutor in the case because she was like, you know, I'm in an election against this guy. I can't be the person who's investigating uh, this uh, Republican candidate for attorney general after he essentially stole a vote counting machine <laughs> and then took it apart with three other freaks from up north. And found absolutely nothing. So they were trying to find something based on the lies from Donald Trump, right? There was nothing right. inside. And so essentially, there was no, absolutely no reason for them to do any of this. But what they did was illegal. So now who knows what's going to happen to these people. I think there was reason, Chuck. It's called science. Yeah, you repeat science. experiments. This is, this is, yeah, I, I, scientific I applaud theory. the whole Trump side. They, <laughs> they, they repeat the experiment over and over to make sure they get the same negative result. They go to court multiple times and get ruled against. They, they have numerous audits of different elections and the, the same result every time. Bad for them, but, you know, good for them. Hey, good for them for using science. Testicular fortitude, that's what I say. Jeffy? Yes, sir? Until next time. Oh, one last thing, dude. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it in September. No, oh, let's talk Unless about it next I... week. I'll try to convince you okay. next week. All right. All right, stay beautiful.
You too. Bye. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is Hell. Dan, do we have any more answers to this week's question from Hell that you would like to share with our audience? Yeah, we have one straggler. Wojcik R says those Dan. Oh, remember the question from Hell, just for those of you had have forgotten, is what evidence of your crimes are you maniacally flushing down the toilet? And Wojcik R says those damn pull tabs from my last excursion to Door County. <laughs> Door County, right across the lake from Traverse City. Yeah, there you go. Look at that. All these things coming into geographical synchronicity. Dan, who is coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? Heather Berg will be on to talk about her Boston Review article, Freedom, Not Benefits, Sex Sex Workers Are Labor's Vanguard. The left ignores them at its peril. Heather (laughs) Heather Berg writes about sex, work, and social struggle. Her first book, Porn Work, explores workers' strategies for navigating and subverting precarity. Heather is assistant professor at Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. And this week, instead of wrapping up the show with Jeff in a moment of truth, it will be producer Sebastian Vopper and his segment on history that is being renamed. Formerly known as Sebastian's Soapbox or Seb's Soapbox, this week we are unveiling The past inside the present. Thank you, Dan, for producing. Dan Hill, today's producer. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>